0: Our God, open our eyes to learn what we do not know about you. Especially help us to learn what we think we know, but know wrongly about you. Guard us from idolatry. Lead us to know and to love you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For at least a couple of Sundays, we return to the basic, the Bible Basics Revisited series. In the first sermons, we saw what the Bible is, that what the Bible says, God says. It is the inerrant, living, sufficient Word of God. And now we look to see what the Bible says about God, about the person and works and will of God. How important is it for a Christian to know God, to know the person of God, the works and the will of God well, our Lord Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, John seventeen three, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the knowledge of God is of the essence of eternal life. But what is, what is the one word we use to describe the subject of the study of God, the knowledge of God. Geology is the study of the earth. Biology is the study of life. What's the word that means the study of God? That would be theology. And I can imagine maybe a first-timer saying, oh, no, theology. I didn't want to hear a sermon about theology. I just wanted to worship God. Well, to such a person, I would say, fine, sign me up. That's what I want, too. I want to worship God. But before we start worshiping, I just got one question who is this God that we're going to worship? And answer without any theology. But of course, it can't be done, because anything that we say about God is theology. No, is it important that we worship the true God? Well, we just kind of read a section about that, didn't we, where God spoke of his own attributes, and he said, don't worship any other gods And don't have relations with the people around you to be tempted to worship their gods because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In fact, he says his name is Jealous. Like we used to say, well, my middle name is Speedy or whatever it is. Well, God's actual name is Jealous. He really, really cares that we not worship false gods. And he really, really cares that we not worship him with false ideas because after all, it's our ideas of God that guide our worship. And we all have ideas of God. So we all do theology. The question is not whether we'll do theology. What's the question? Do we do good theology or bad theology? And the only good theology is theology that lines up with his word, which we studied about in the first sermons of this series. Our knowledge of God has to be guided by the word of God. Our worship of God has to be guided by the knowledge of God which has to be guided by the Word of God. So we're going to start today looking at a fundamental revealed truth about God in Scripture. And this is one of those things where as I wrote the sermon, I thought, I'm going to have to be talking really fast. Really, they're going to feel like they drank out of a fire hose once again. And that usually is what leads me to split a sermon into two. And that's what I've done. So today we will just look at this about God, Roman numeral 1, the fundamental biblical truth that God is one. God is one. And I'm going to single out three ways in which God is one, two of them very similar to each other. First of all, letter A, he is one in essence. That's not a word you write a lot. It is E-S-S-E-N-C-E. He is one in essence. Now, you may think, that sounds like that's going to be very hard to understand. I think I can make it not hard to understand by telling you as to definition, number one, essence answers the question, what? So if you say, what is God? Or if you ask, what kind of God is God? The answer will be in terms of essence. The essence of God is what God is what his nature is. So in other words for essence, if you prefer them, would be nature. The nature of God is the essence of God. Or attributes. The attributes of God is the essence of God. Or a word I've taken to liking is perfections. It's hard to break a habit of decades, but uh, attributes and perfections are the same. But the perfections of God, all of the words we would use to describe God are things that, why we may have them to some degree, in God they are all perfect. We may have some degree of love or holiness, but in God, love and holiness and all of his other character traits are perfect. So God's essence is what identifies him as, who he, as, as what he is as God. If, if you were to report God is missing to the police and they ask you for a description, your answer would be his essence. It would be in terms of his perfections, of what makes God, God. So this is important because it tells us what kind of God God is. And, and, we're, and it, it, our understanding of this is going to be important next week when we begin to look at the doctrine of the Trinity. So let's understand what essence is. And I'm just going to pick out four of his perfections. Now, there are many, and the list is long, and it would be very profitable to do a series. There is a, a book, a Puritan book by Stephen Charnock called The Existence of at- and Attributes of God and it's massive. It's hundreds and hundreds of pages, and so rich, and so really good. But we're just going to single out four of God's uh, attributes, His perfections, and talk about uh, each and what we learn from them as just a a, a brief sampling of, of what God is. So first, God is holy. Letter A, God is holy. Turn to Psalm 99 with me, please. Not too hard to find, but do turn there, please. None of us is above putting our eyes on Scripture. Unless you memorize it, I guess. Psalm 99. And there is a repeated refrain in this psalm. Three times. Verse 3, Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. And verse 5, exalt Yahweh our God and worship at the footstool of his feet, holy is he. And then finally, verse 9, exalt Yahweh our God and worship at his holy mountain, for holy is Yahweh our God. It's like the first two are briefer, and the third is the climax. Holy is He, praise Him, verse 3. Exalt Him. In other words, lift Him up on high, verse 5. And then verse 9 says, exalt and worship. Lift Him high. And the word for worship means to bow down low. Lift Him high, bow down low. Why? Because holy is Yahweh our God. Three times that attribute. Holy, holy, holy. Hmm. Is there any other place where that attribute is singled out three times? Isaiah chapter 6. And here's the vision that Isaiah has of the Lord after King Uzziah's death. And he sees the Lord exalted again in the temple, and his the train of his robe filling the temple, and, and smoke, and there's cherubim covering, or seraphim, pardon me, covering their face and their feet and flying before him. And perfectly righteous, sinless. Seraphim, what overwhelms them about God? What attribute do they say three times? Hint, it's the only attribute that is said three times like this. Holy. Holy, 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 verse 3, is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Sinless as they are, they're overwhelmed to the point of covering their flawless faces and crying out, Holy, holy, holy holy. Not loving, 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 not gracious, 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 but holy, holy, holy. Is that seen or it's like repeated? It is in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 4 verse 8, where we see the four living creatures before the presence of God. They also have six wings, but they're full of eyes round and about them. Day and night, Revelation 4 8, John says, day and night they do not cease to say Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. They too are overwhelmed in his presence with the truth of the holiness of God. So, We've said it. Well, what does it mean to say that God is holy? Well, as I've told you before, you ask a lot of Christians and, uh, what holy means, and they will say, set apart, like that tells you anything. And I've told you that if we're talking about human holiness, it's better to say, set apart to the ownership and service of God. But what does it mean to say that God is holy? Well, really the same thing. It means that God is set apart to the ownership and the service of God. You could say there's two aspects to God's holiness. You could speak of His majestic holiness. And as to His majestic holiness, He is transcendent. He is other. He is above creation, not part of creation. He is unto Himself. There is none like Him. God is absolutely unique. In himself, utterly transcendent and utterly unto himself. That's his majestic holiness. But you could also speak, secondly, of his moral holiness. His moral holiness. And what does that mean? Well, he's specifically set apart from sin, from all that is wrong, all that is wicked, all that is vile. He is morally, ethically perfect, and such that he hates sin. It it is, of course, necessary. Sin is the contradiction of his character and his being. Sin is the opposite of who God is. And God, it does not just reject sin. God hates sin. It's a holy hatred that God has of sin. But this is a defining perfection of God. And, of course, this is where a great many people uh, at large go astray. In, in, their, in their view of God, they don't really have a place for His holiness. They just think of Him in terms of attributes that serve them, that, that fit their narrative, that fit the dream of their life. So they have use for a God that is loving in their definition of love. And, and usually to people, what God's love means is unconditional a- 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 approval, right? It means you're doing great. I got your back follow your dream. And that's God's love to them. God's always there to have their back. And he's forgiving. Not that they really believe in sin, but if they ever did goof goof up in any way, well, it's good to know that God says, that's all right, pookie. You just go ahead. You're fine. We're good. And that's their attribute of God. But holiness of God, a God who is transcendent, a God who doesn't really need us, a God who is unto himself and is apart from sin and actually flamingly blazingly hates sin that's not much of our view of God because that doesn't serve us because we really want a God who signs our checks we want a God who uh, has our back who wants to see us pursue our dreams and a God who says no I want to see you pursue my will and hates it when we defy his will Mm, that's not useful To our narrative, it doesn't fit, and so we don't think about it. And yet there it is, biblically it's a central truth about God. You can't talk about the God of the Bible without talking about his holiness. You can't rightly, I can't rightly, we can't rightly conceive of God unless we see holiness at the at the core of his being, because it is his perfection. And it is the perfection that is singled out and said three times, three times at least that I know of. In Psalm 99, in Isaiah 6, in Revelation 4, three times, three times, God is said to be holy, holy, holy. So there's the first attribute or perfection of God that describes his essence. A second is love. And some might think, boy, you're going from opposite to opposite." Am I, though? Let's talk about that later. But God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4, 8. Now, John does not merely say that God is loving. That would be a great thing to, to hear. That would be very good news to know that God loves, and He does or to hear that he's loving, and Scripture affirms that he's loving, but, but more than just that he is loving, Scripture says that he is love, that he is the perfection of love. In fact, we need to understand that God is the original of love, that any love in creation is a dim reflection of the love of God. He's, he's the original. You want to see where the love comes from, you've got to look to God. God invented the idea. And again, it's, it's an American amazingness that we, we want to tell God what love means and we want to dictate what love means and to say this scriptural truth is not loving but to say that scriptural truth may be loving to say this unscriptural truth is much more loving uh, because we're such experts on love <sighs> I mean, yeah, that's, that's the first thing you think, right? When you look at the world, you think, yeah, they really got love down I want to be lectured on love by this lot, right? Is that what you think? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. God is the original of love. God is love. But wait, somebody says, "No, wait a minute. You just said he was holy. Now, holy and love aren't they really kind of opposites? I mean, you just said that what it means for God to be holy is to say that He's transcendent. He's He's other. He's unto Himself, and He's set He's cut apart. Um, set apart from sin. Hates sin. But I mean, it's just." Well, we sin, and you're saying that he's love. Now, holy is an apart thing. Love is a connecting thing. It's a giving thing. It's a flowing out thing. How can you say that God is holy and loving? Is he two things at once? Are they opposites of each other? Is it that that sometimes God really is holy and other times He's loving? Maybe that's really the way to think about it. That sometimes we'll tap into His holiness, but sometimes into His love. And, And maybe really that's how to explain the gospel then. The gospel is the triumph of God's love over His holiness. No, thank you for the no, that's exactly right. All this I just said is heresy. But I, I want us to think about it because I think a lot of Christians have these ideas but perhaps have never, never been taught otherwise. Although I have learned you can teach people otherwise, it doesn't mean that, that people accept it necessarily. But uh, one does one's best. Scripture says very uh, openly and very insistently God is holy and God is love, and it's, it's no clearer on the one than the other. God is holy, God is love, letter C, God is sovereign. Again, in case you don't write that a lot, S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N. Sovereign, God is sovereign. What does it mean to say that He's sovereign? It means to say that He's love. Pardon me, Lord, another four-letter L word, Lord. He, we said He was love. He's Lord. He's supreme. His, his authority rules over all. His power rules over all. His will will triumph over all. Scripture says that in exactly such words and truths. Here's just a few verses that say that. Psalm 115 verse 3 but our God is in the heavens, in contrast to false gods, our God is in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases. The Hebrew Kol Asher Khafetz Asa literally means everything he pleases, he does. So the set of what God wants done and the set of what God does are the same set. God does his will, he's sovereign. Uh, But can't somebody stop him from doing what he's pleased to do? Oh, there's a verse that exactly answers that question. A couple of verses. A bunch of verses. We'll just read one. Daniel 4.35. Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson, and he confesses, "...and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth." And no one can strike against his hand or say to him, "What have you done?" And there's the picture of God reaching out to doing something, and somebody slaps his hand away. And he says, "Nobody can do that. What God sets out to do, God does." And Paul affirms this exact same thing, Ephesians one one one, Ephesians one eleven. Paul says, In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What book does God uh, consult with in carrying out his will? The book of what he wants to do. It's the only book he needs to look at. And what he chooses to do, he does. He works all things. And this in a section that began with saying that he selected us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world, predestined us to adoption as sons, and so forth. Well, is that going to happen for God's elect? Yes, it will. Why? Because he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And nothing can stop that. Nothing can strike his hand away so that that isn't accomplished. God does his will in the heavens and on the earth. Now, uh, many people don't, well, let me say, all fallen people don't like this. It, it starts with Satan. The sovereignty of God is something Satan hated. He did not want God over him. He wanted to be over God. And he gave that same bug to Adam and to Eve and the whole race. And we don't like a really God-God we like a more domesticated God. We like a tamer God. A God who's more obligated to play by our ideas of fairness. We, we hate the idea that God wouldn't respect our ideas of, of fairness. So we invent silly Christian games. Like we say, well, God limits his sovereignty. And it's something that people will say that and not, and not immediately hear themselves and say, wait, that can't be right. <laughs> that can't be right. Imagine saying God limits his love or God limits his holiness, or God limits his being light, or God limits his mercy. But these are all his attributes. They're not limited. For God to limit his sovereignty would be to limit his deity. If God limited his sovereignty, he would stop being the God he is. He would be something else. Because sovereignty is what he is. It is what he does. Is there any other attribute he turns off and on? I'll give you a hint. The answer starts with N and ends in O. No, he does not turn off any of his attributes, including his sovereignty. In fact, it's something that the Bible we all hold in our hands has that exact thought and an answer to it. Romans chapter 9, verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Not just what people say. And if Paul thought this, and if the Holy Spirit wanted it said, this is the perfect place to say, oh, you ask who resists his will? Well, everybody does. That's, that's free will. He's limited his sovereignty. He's given us sovereignty in these matters, and, and he bows to our will on these things. You have to understand, you know, there's a balance here. There's, God's kind of so, pretty sovereign. We're actually, he's very sovereign, but we're also completely free. And that's the place to explain that. Do you remember what Paul actually does say, though? To the uh, question, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Paul's answer is, on the contrary, O man, who are you who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Well, there's the apostle led by the Holy Spirit simply flatly affirming the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. He is holy. He is love. He is sovereign a fourth attribute. I cheated and combined two. Wise and all-knowing. Because I really wanted to talk about both of these, and they're really related to each other. He is wise, But they're not exactly the same. He is wise and all-knowing, letter D. You need them both to get the full picture, though. Because you can know a lot of things and not understand them, right? <laughs> have, you, have you met people who know a lot of things, but they don't really understand them very well? They, can shoot, they could win at jeopardy, but they're just absolute idiots about life or, or things that matter in life. But boy, do they know a lot of facts. Well, God doesn't just know a lot of facts. He understands all of them. In fact, God doesn't just know a lot of facts. He knows all the facts. And He doesn't just understand them. He knows everything about them from every angle. Totally. So, for instance, Psalm 147, verse 5. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His discernment is infinite. I believe the, the Hebrew there is literally there's no counting. You can't, you can't count it. You can't count His discernment. It's limitless. Psalm 2, i sorry, Proverbs 2.6, for Yahweh gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and discernment. Now, what that means is not just that he made a really good buy on wisdom at Costco, and so he has it to give away. It means he's the original of it. He is the fountain of wisdom. All wisdom flows from him. All knowledge flows from him. All discernment flows from him. And so this is why Paul can cry out in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. He is just absolutely bowled over at the thought, the very thought of the limitless knowledge and wisdom of God. Now, that, that is an overwhelming thought, but let me make it even more overwhelming, if possible. How did God come by this knowledge? And the answer is, He didn't come by this knowledge. Now, have you ever had an annoying schoolmate who seemed to be able to take tests without studying? And Yeah, <laughs> I guess you have. Hey, just walk in and ace a test. But you know, He did not not study. He studied some other time and has a really good memory. But there was a time when he didn't know those things, and he acquired those things. That's just like God isn't. God doesn't acquire knowledge. God doesn't study. God doesn't have to learn anything. And you say, oh, my husband's exactly like that. No, he's not. God knows everything without studying is what I'm saying. There was never a point in God's existence when God didn't know everything. He doesn't have to acquire knowledge. He doesn't move from not knowing to knowing. There's not a process. It is, it's an attribute of his that he knows everything. And how does he know everything? He knows everything in a timeless, instantaneous act of intuition. Can I say that slower? Yes, you no, know, it wouldn't help. What I mean is, just by virtue of of being himself and knowing himself, God knows everything. Why? Because all facts are a result of his decrees. He knows everything by knowing himself. Because all that is, is because he decreed it to be. See above. See the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. God rules all things. God is creator of all things. God is the fountainhead of all things. And so, yes, God knows all things without acquiring a knowledge of all things. He knows it intuitively. He knows it instantly. He knows it eternally. And He knows it exhaustively. And so, this is God. Now, I mean, the the practical implications and the doctrinal implications of this are, are really numberless and... Probably most of them don't really occur to us, but if you think about it, well, think about the times when, when we've been pretty sure that God mishandled something. Oh, you never thought that, right? But you've known people who did. You've known people who thought that God didn't do the right thing here. You knew what he should have done, but he didn't do it. And you, in your heart, you think, I mean, this other person that you know thinks, God really should have done this. Now, think what we're saying, though. Because course, the thing is, we don't often think what we're saying, do we? We just feel it and we say it, and then we don't reflect on it. That's why we don't grow. We just feel. We don't reflect. We don't apply Scripture. That's free with the sermon, no extra charge, whatever. But um, think of what we're saying when we say that. And and I will confess to you, I absolutely know that feeling. I'm sorry to say it, but I absolutely know that feeling. But then you have to make yourself say, okay, really, (laughs) are you saying that you, with your little lifespan of this... And your sphere of knowledge of this understood the situation better than the God who knows everything and rules and controls everything from every angle eternally. But you have something he missed. Is that what you're saying? Oh, That's folly, isn't it? And to criticize his dealings and to say, well, you know, I I won't accept what the Bible says about election or predestination because it doesn't fit my idea of fairness. It doesn't fit my idea of the way God really ought to handle things. Well, okay, then that means repent. Because if I disagree with God, what does that mean? It means I'm wrong. And that's what it always means. If my wife disagrees with me, what does that mean? Nothing necessarily, you know, it just, it, she might very well be right. Very, 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 very possible she's right. Often is the case she's right. But if we disagree with God, a hundred times out of a hundred, it means we're wrong. hundred times out of hundred. Why? Because God is wise and all knowing. His understanding is infinite. He gives wisdom. If I have any, it's because He gave it to me. So there's just four attributes of God, four amazing, mind-blowing, astonishing attributes of God. He is holy, He is love, He is sovereign, He is wise and all-knowing. And let me add now to those glorious attributes two glories about His perfections. The first is the simplicity of God. Now you say... (laughs) I can't go with you there, brother, because I don't think God's simple at all. I think he's very complicated. He's very very hard to understand, OK, that's not what this means in this case. What it means to say that God is simple, or to speak of the simplicity of God in this context, means that God is not a composite. That's what goes in the blank. If you don't have a better way than to take this home, then I trust you filling the blanks in. He's not a composite. John 4.24 says, God is spirit. Spirit doesn't have parts. It doesn't have bones. It doesn't have atoms. There's no parts to God. So let's talk about the meaning of saying God is, is simple. He's not a composite. The meaning is not that he's easy to understand. He's not that. But it is that he's one. He's not composed of parts. Your car is a composite. There's lots of parts to your car. Your computer is a composite. We're composites. There's lots of parts to us. But God is not made up of parts. I think this is worth seeing vividly. And I thank the Russell family for the gift, the loan of this uh, little illustration. But I think a lot of people think this, and there's, it's worth really looking into. God is not like, okay, he's love. But he's not just love. He's also holy. But he's not just holy. He's also sovereign. But he's not just sovereign. He's also wise and all-knowing. So here, is this what God is like? Here's these four perfections of God. And then you say, well, no, it's not like what God's like. There's at least 10 others. Okay. If I had 10 other Duplos, would that be a good picture of God? You afraid to answer? I'm sorry if I've done that to you. Sorry if I've done that to you. The answer is no. This is not a good picture of God, because God is not composed of parts. And as we look at his perfections, we're not looking at parts of God. God is one. And as we list off his perfections, we're not listing off parts of God. So, the meaning is God is not a composite. God is one. Attributes, then, let's talk about this. And now I I want you to get this. Hope you're noting this down. I don't know how you couldn't forget it if you don't. Everything God is, He is all the time in every situation. Everything God is, He is all the time in every situation. So all of the true things that we can say about God are always true about God and they're true in every relationship and every situation of God. Now, yes, it's true. Some of the works of God may showcase one of His attributes more than other. The Creation of the universe showcases His power. It showcases His wisdom. The, um, well, the cross, let's say, showcases His love, showcases His grace and His mercy. Uh, The last judgment showcases his justice and his righteousness. Do you see? But in all of those situations, God is also, everything else he is, fully, 100% all the time. You say, my head has exploded. How can you do that? My answer to that question is, you can't. (laughs) I can't. We are composites. But God is God and this is just it. We want an image of God that's, that's small enough to fit into our heads. Any such image is not God. God is too big to fit in our heads but we can see the truths about God. All of his perfections are all true. So what that means then is that every one of his perfections is characterized by all of his perfections. Do you see that? In other words, what I'm saying is, is God holy that's an easy question but is he holy as opposed to being gracious and loving and righteous and merciful no his holiness is a gracious holiness it is a merciful holiness it's a loving holiness it's an all-knowing holiness it's an all-powerful holiness it's an all-wise holiness now let's talk about his grace is god does god have grace yes he does but his grace is a holy grace. It's a righteous grace. It's a wise grace. It's an all powerful grace. Do you see? Every attribute of God is characterized by every attribute of God. You say, You're making me dizzy. Good. That's good. We need to have an image of God that's the Bible's image of God. And when people saw God, what was their reaction as a whole? Was their reaction, Oh, lovely. Thank you so much for this. Let's sit down and chat. Get my coffee. Is that how people reacted? How do people generally react when they saw God? Fell on their face and thought they'd die. <laughs> they were knocked unconscious. I mean, and so that is, what's, that is the way we should think about God. He's massive beyond our imagining, He is, he is tremendous beyond our imagining. So all of His perfections characterize all of His perfections. So that's why you can say God is love, and you can say God is light, and you can say God is holy without a but or even an and in between. He is all those things because He is simple, because He is one. Now, in us, these, these things can uh, uh, conflict. Every parent knows that, right? Every parent knows that. You have a situation where you have told your child absolutely plainly that if he does X, you will, you will issue punishment Y. Right? You with me? And then he does it, and either you're just really feeling fond of him at the moment, and he's your favorite anyway, that you won't tell the other ones, or you're just so tired, or you're busy doing something else, and, and a war happens within in us, there's a war between, well, I mean, let's just say it. It's faithfulness, because if I said I would do it and I don't do it, I've just lied to my child. How great is that as a parent? Father of the year right there. I told a lie. Maybe I said it and I didn't ever mean to do it. I just wanted to get the effect by threatening the child. I thought it might sober her or him up. But now I've got a conflict. As I've said it. I know that. So my faithfulness maybe is in conflict with my mercy and maybe I think it would actually be overkill so it conflicts with my wisdom. Are, are you following me? You got better tell me that you're following me. And there's a battle inside. And you're not sure which of these things should, should, should rule. And so you have to work it through. Well, You have to ask your wife is what you have to do. And then she straightens it out for you. Because she's wiser about those things. But however it is, you've got to deal with those things. Now, that never... Happens with God. Absolutely critical to understand that because many Christians' understanding of the gospel is just that that in holiness, God really knew He should send us to hell, but His mercy and love prevailed. And so instead of His holiness, He showed us mercy and love. But do you now see that's not possible? God's attributes are not intention. They don't fight with each other. Every attribute is explained by every other attribute. So it would be impossible for God to be gracious and not holy, to be holy and not loving, to be loving and not righteous. So this is the beauty of the gospel. And if we haven't seen it, then we don't really understand the gospel. In the gospel, we see the fullest display of all the attributes of God. I mean, I just, I, I just can't tell you, but I, I, want to. In the gospel, all the attributes of God are on display. It, um, it's amazing. It's amazing. If we've reduced the gospel to a simple little believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, there's the gospel. Oh boy, you know, go back, start over. The gospel is an amazing display of God's attributes. So, the um, simplicity of God. He's not a composite. And so, uh, that also applies to his persons, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing. It is a great error, and many Christians, maybe most, have said this. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but what if I did? In your heart, don't raise your hand. But if I said, how many of you ever, have ever said that Jesus is a part of God? Don't raise your hand, or that the I'm not even going to look, <laughs> or that the Holy Spirit is a part of God, or that or the, the Father is a part of God. No, they aren't. God is not composed of parts. Secondly, the immutability of God well, what does that mean? That's a big word. I can say it simply, letter B. It means God does not change. There is no, never a fundamental change to God, which again applies to the gospel. The gospel is not God changing from a judge to a savior. No, no, no. Could not be. Do you see? Not just didn't, but couldn't be. That's not who God is. That's not what God is. Malachi 3, 6a, for I, Yahweh, do not change. And a number of verses say that same thing. God is always who He is. He's always what He is, let me say. He's always what He is. His essence does not change. So, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. That was one of the great surprises to me when I was saved. I'd been told in my cult that the Old, Old and New Testament were very different and the image of God in the New Testament, totally different from the image of God in the Old Testament. So when I was saved, I, I, was, I was converted. I knew I had to read the Old Testament, but I did it with some trepidation because I knew I would see that God is so very different. And I was just amazed. Not at all. He's exactly the same God, exactly the same God. He doesn't change. If in anything, the New Testament more intensely uh, reveals what the Old Testament says about him, but he's the same God. He does not change. Now, that's a wonderful thing, really. You say, well, sometimes it doesn't feel wonderful. I wish I could change his mind about things. Boy, think what a disaster that would be. I mean, sometimes when you feel that and you, you, you feel it, just stop and say, So what would it be if I could change God besides the end of everything? (laughs) But no, he doesn't change. And that is why we can fear him and we can trust him. He's not going to change his standards to suit us. He's not going to change his word because we'd like him to. But also it means that we're not going to get to heaven and get the question, why should I let you into heaven and give the answer? Because I've trusted Christ because Christ died for my sins. And have God say, you know, that was the deal up to nineteen forty-seven. But then I changed my mind. And the, the way to get into heaven, totally different. I just didn't tell anybody. See so that, that 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 can't happen because can't happen. Praise God, can't happen. Because he doesn't change. So he doesn't have mood swings, he, he doesn't have bad days. God's always God. And so that's why the Bible calls him a rock. But the thing is, rocks can split, right? They can fall into the earth. God can't. So we rest on him, knowing he'll never change. His loving kindness is forever, like the Psalms say over and over and over again. It's worth repeating. He doesn't change. So he's one in essence. Letter B, he's one in totality. You know, if, anyway, I'll say that later if I have to. Uh, now you're in suspense. Excellent. Letter B, one in totality. Now, let me explain what I mean by saying he's one in totality. He is essentially one. Now, we've been saying that, but I'm just saying it straight up. His essence is one. What's a verse that says that? Very famous verse. Everybody really ought to know this verse. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is... One, Yahweh is one. Now that verse is not saying He's one among many. It's not saying He's the one for us. It's saying He is as to His as to His nature. He is one. Yahweh is is one. He's not many gods. He's not three gods. There are not three who have these attributes individually. He's one. This sermon goes in many places. I I don't know who's going to listen to it off the internet. Perhaps I have the great joy of of having a a Mormon listener listening to this. And I'm I'm so happy you are, if if you are. And I know that a verse that the the Mormons often quote is from 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul says, there are many gods. That's true. Paul does say that. But as so often, you've got to read the words around those words. Let me back up. He says, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. He's just saying many people call many things God, but there's really only one God. There's really only one God. His nature, his essence is one. His persons are three. We'll talk about that next week. Simply put, God is one in one way and three in another way. He is eternally three persons, but His essence, His nature is always one. So, the essence that the Father has, the Son has... The Spirit has. They're not just the same as each other. Listen to me. This is a little difficult, but I think, I think we can all get this. I mean, if I can get it, anybody can get it. It's not that the Father has the same essence that the Son has and that the Spirit has. It's that they have the same essence. Not the same as each other. There was a great heresy that said that the Son was homoousios to the Father. That means of like substance. But the orthodox answer is, no, he's homoousios, the same substance, because there's only one God. So one will, one mind, one, one knowledge, one holiness, one sovereignty, one love, one righteousness, this is God. This is God. God is one. God is not in conflict with God. God doesn't select certain people, and then Jesus goes and dies for other people. And the Holy Spirit regenerates what the Father, but not Jesus. I mean, they're not at odds with each other. There's one will in the, the Godhead, the Trinity. He's essentially one, and, and number two, he's one in himself. Number two, he is essentially unique. So he's one in himself, but he's also one and apart from all false gods. He's unique. There's only one of him. Many, many verses say this. I've just picked out Two. Exodus fifteen eleven, who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? And who is like you majestic in holiness, fearsome in praises, working wonders? And what's the expected answer to that? Nobody. Isaiah forty eighteen. Yahweh asks, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? And what's the expected answer? Nobody. God is absolutely unique. This is often stated in Scripture. Now, unbelievers will often say, Oh yeah, the, the Bible God there's a hundred gods just like him. There's two reasons they might say this. And well, okay, three if you count just they're lying. They know better. But another reason they're saying this is they don't know anything about the Bible, and that's commonly the case. But another possibility they might say this is because they're getting their picture of God from Christians who don't know anything about the Bible. And sadly that's that's very common. They've heard Christians describe God, describe God <clears throat> in sentimental terms. A God like our culture would like Him. He's, he's loving, He's gentle, He's accepting of everything we want to do. And this is the culture's God. It's not the Bible's God, but it is the culture's God. And they look at that and they say, quite rightly, oh, there's a lots of gods like that. Well, yes, there are. There's lots of gods like that. There aren't lots of gods like this, like the God revealed in Scripture. There's just the one who is all these attributes in one essence. So he is essentially one, he's essentially unique. And that is so letter C in contrast to false gods. Now this is presented in scripture a number of ways. He is one in contrast to false gods. Scripture says this by prohibition, what do I mean? Well, I mean the first and second commandment. What's the first commandment? Exodus 20, verse 3. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because they're all so good, but God doesn't want to compete? Well, because they're false. There are no other gods. There's just Yahweh. So don't have other gods. If you have another god, it'll be a false god. You see, that commandment is actually for our good. (laughs) What's the second commandment? Verses 4 through 6 you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of anything to bow down and worship it. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. So you see, there's why it's very important for to, to see God the way God sees himself. Because if I don't see God the way he sees himself, what am I seeing? A false God. And if I don't worship God as he reveals himself in Scripture alone, what am I worshiping? An idol. I'm worshiping an idol. So the Bible shows God's uh, uniqueness, His oneness in contrast to other gods by prohibiting the worship of other gods. Letter B, by assertions. Now here's, here's what, I'll just read this to you, but do write it down obviously. Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 8b. By assertions, Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says Yahweh the King of Israel and His Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Now, see above, how much does God know? Everything. So when God says, I don't know of any other gods, what's he saying? (laughs) There are no other gods. If there were, he would know it. There are no other gods. And then Isaiah 40, uh, verse 8, 44, verse 8. Is there any other god besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Now, again, don't read that as, oh, well, he knows of none, but maybe there are. <laughs> no, if he doesn't know of any, then there aren't any because his understanding is infinite. And then Isaiah 45, verse 5a. I am Yahweh and there is no other Besides me, there is no God. So he is one by pro- prohibition. We're prohibited for having, from having any other gods. And we're also prohibited from thinking wrong things about God. That's one of the implications of that. Also by assertion, the, the, the fact that God says there aren't any other God. And by derision. Now, obviously, you'll write this down. You can look at this later. I'll just summarize for you. 1 Kings 18, what, what is that story about? It's Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And you remember how Elijah just rips on them? They can't produce fire. And so what does Elijah say? Well, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe if you were louder. Or maybe he's in the bathroom. That's actually one of the things he says. Maybe he's in the bathroom. I mean, he just absolutely ridicules them. And God ridicules them by having water poured over everything and then lighting the water on fire, which is a nice trick if you can do it. You can't. God does. He ridicules the thought of other gods. Uh, Isaiah 44. That's a a great little story about a, a guy who... Who cuts down a tree and he finds two uses for the tree. What's the two uses? One's a barbecue and the other is an idol. So half of it fires his barbecue and half of it becomes his God and he worships it. And Isaiah is just ripping this. And then uh, next Psalms 115 and 135 also ridicules false gods, saying, Look at that statue. It's got eyes, it's got hands, it's got ears. It doesn't hear anything. It doesn't see anything. It doesn't go anywhere. But God made eyes, hands, and ears. He sees all, knows all, does all, hears all. So uh, Scripture is absolutely unsparing in its ridicule of the thought of other gods. So let's reflect on that. Uh, a little bit. So what does idolatry mean then? Does it mean that we shouldn't build a statue and worship it? Well, I'll put that question out. Does that, is that what that means? We shouldn't build a statue and worship it, as far as that goes. That's true. Second commandment says that in so many words. But what else does is idolatry? Well, I, I point you to Colossians 3 verses 5 and 6. Jot it down. Colossians 3 verses 5 and 6. Where Paul says, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead too, and then he lists off a bunch of sins, and then says, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. So greed, which is idolatry. So greed is idolatry. Does anybody literally make a statue of a $500 bill and worship it? Literally, well, probably, and probably in California, but but not that I know of, and that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about statues. He says greed is idolatry. How can greed be idolatry? Because anything that we make ultimate that isn't God is idolatry. Anything that we look to first for meaning, for hope, for joy, for help, that is our God, and if that's not the God of Scripture. We're idol worshipers. So this, uh, this bites us. And, and even uh, the churchgoer who has a cozy image of God that he's comfortable with, that he would never let Scripture challenge or change, yeah, he's an idolater too. God is what's ultimate to me, and there can only be one true God to us. And that has to be the God who reveals himself in Scripture. So what's, what's the last thing John writes in his first letter? First letter of John. You think, okay, I know he writes about love. He writes about righteousness. He writes about truth. What's the last thing he writes? What's the last thing he writes? My little children, keep yourself from idols. He knows that's always, always a temptation. A temptation to worship a false god. Constantly need to watch. So in sum, God is one infinite being, letter D. He is one infinite being. Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. Can, can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? Declares Yahweh. Do I not fill heavens and earth? Declares Yahweh. First Kings eight twenty seven. That was Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. First Kings eight twenty seven. Uh, Solomon, uh, having uh, built the temple, he says, "But will God truly dwell on earth?" Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. So the first verse says he fills everything. Solomon says he's bigger than everything. He fills everything and beyond. And Psalm 145 verse 3, Great is Yahweh and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. So God is one infinite being. He doesn't just fill the universe. He's too big for the universe. And you say, I don't know what that means. And I say, that's okay. That's okay. It is to point us to the fact that God is massive beyond our imagining. And what I just said about God is true about every one of his perfections. He is love beyond my imagining. He is holy beyond my imagining. He is wise and knowing beyond our imagining. He is sovereign beyond our imagining from from the movement of kingdoms to the the course of the tiniest atom or molecule. God is sovereign and so he's he's not see this is we need to understand he's not just the greatest created thing like you know. An ant is greater than a molecule, and a lizard is greater than an ant, and a dog is greater than a, than a lizard, and on and on. Then we've got man, and then we've got God. No, he's not even on this scale, do you see? He created the scale. He's above it. He's beyond it. He's too big for it. So, what is God? Probably not going to get better than the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The the fourth question is, What is God? And the answer is, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Amen. So he is. I just close with one question then for this week. The question I close with is, Can I know this God? You've described a massive, huge, unimaginably infinite God. Can I, a little stupid, sinful being, know this God? Well, here's a spoiler alert. God is not just one what. He is three who's. This infinite God is also personal. He's not just personal. He's tripersonal. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So He's not only vast and infinite, He is personal. As you've often heard me say, He is the infinite personal God. Very important to keep in mind, the best we can, both those truths. At the same time, in the same little cranium. God is infinite and personal. So, can you know love? Well, I wouldn't know how. But can you know Father? Can you know the Son? Can you know the Holy Spirit? Yes, Yes, he has spoken so I could know him. He has spoken himself. He has spoken of himself so that I might learn of him. He's a person who can be loved, known, trusted, feared, revered, obeyed. He's a person. So, and he's an unchanging, infinite person. So when you come to know Jesus, you come to know the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever because this essence is his essence. When through Jesus you come to know God as father, you come to know one who is always holy and always love, always wise, always righteous, always sovereign. When you come to know the spirit, whose essence we have also just described because they are of the same essence, you approach one who is himself also holy and love and life. So yes, we can know God by knowing Father, Son, Holy Spirit on His terms as revealed in His Word. And Lord willing, we'll learn more of this next week. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for these truths. And I just pray again that they will humble us, they will teach us where we have seen our error Help us not to have hardened our hearts and doubled down, but humble ourselves, learn and repent. Use this truth of your word to lead us to love you more ardently, to fear you more wholeheartedly, to revere you and submit to you, to cling to you and to worship only you. And we pray for those who've come in not knowing Christ, that they will see their lack of knowledge of him and they will be drawn to know Jesus, who to know is life eternal. In Jesus' name, amen.